Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Conferences for Women. On March 14th, tens of thousands will come together in one digital space for a national gathering of women supporting women. Register now and gain access to experts on career advancement, leadership, and personal development. maconferenceforwomen.org slash national dash conference. For decades, the conservative movement worked relentlessly to restrict or ban abortion in the United States. Along the way, the Republican Party used opposition to abortion rights as a reliable vote-getter. But since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year and restrictive trigger laws clicked into place across the country, the conservative movement's huge victory has become more complicated for Republicans. They've lost elections they should have won, from Kansas to the midterms to Wisconsin. It turns out abortion rights are energizing Democrats, younger voters, and suburban independents, while Republicans struggle to craft a response. Now, with the 2024 election taking shape, many in the party are trying to figure out how to get out of what looks like an electoral dead end. I'm Anthony Brooks, in for Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point, and this hour, the GOP and the abortion trap. Joining me first from Washington, D.C. is Jess Bidgood. She's senior national political reporter for the Boston Globe who's been covering this issue. And Jess, it's great to have you. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Anthony. Hi there. So help us understand the background to this challenge facing Republicans. It's happening on a state level. It's happening on a national level. Let's talk about what's uh, what's, what's going on at the state level. Give, Give us the lay of the land since the Dobbs decision ended a woman's right, a constitutional right to abortion last year. Sure. So Republicans have been pushing um, against abortion rights for decades, and they've notched enormous wins in the past year. The fall of Roe versus Wade cleared the way um, for the current state of affairs in which there are 13 states that ban most abortions, plus Georgia, which bans most abortions after six weeks. Um, But what they're finding is that these kind of hardline restrictions are not very popular with the general public. Um, They've spurred a fierce backlash from voters, especially in states where abortion rights are still hanging in the balance and it's a very tangible issue for voters. Um, And that's costing Republicans at the ballot box, as you said, in, in some states where they should be expected either to win or to have a fighting chance um, and and not, you know, a pretty close election. Right. And one of the things that's happened, right, is that um, after the Dobbs decision came down, which ended a constitutional right to abortion, many states had these so-called trigger laws that came into effect. So tell us about that and how that has altered the climate across the country and focused more attention on this challenge facing Republicans. What, what, are, what are some examples of these trigger laws and what they're doing? Absolutely. So some states had these trigger laws kind of waiting in the wings, laws that said that if Roe versus Wade falls, we are going to ban abortion um, 
basically as quickly as we can. And so in some states last summer, um, when the Dobbs decision came down and uh, the protection for abortion rights that Roe versus Wade had guaranteed went away, um, in, in some states, you had abortion rights kind of vanish overnight. In others, it took a little bit longer to take effect. Um, but that's what gets us to this place now where you've got a bunch of states largely in the South um, where where abortions are, m- most abortions are banned. There are some exceptions for uh, the life of the mother, but in many cases there, there aren't even exceptions for cases like rape and incest. Um, and this has been really motivating. One state that I think is an interesting example of this is Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. That's not a state that actually had a trigger law. What Wisconsin had was a law from 1849 that banned most abortions in the state. And when Roe went into effect in um, in the 70s, that law was was basically invalidated. It was no longer on the books. And when Roe fell, that 1849 law went back into effect essentially overnight. So that's a good example of, you know, a purple state. It's really evenly divided politically um, where people who had had abortion rights for decades um, lost them overnight. And and we've really seen that shape politics in the state ever since. Right. And let's talk about that recent state Supreme Court election in Wisconsin. So Milwaukee County Circuit Judge uh, uh, Janet uh, Protasewicz. She's a liberal. She defeated former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly, a conservative, which essentially flipped the ideological balance of the court. Remind us how central abortion was in this ra- in that race. It was incredibly central. So I was in Wisconsin um, a few weeks ago. I'm actually headed back there today. Um, and and Janet Protasewicz, when she launched her campaign, her very first two campaign ads made clear um, that she supports abortion rights. Now, this was a sort of nominally nonpartisan race, um, but in this day and age, um, it's pretty hard to 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 fight a race like this and and keep it nonpartisan. And so Protasewicz's strategy was to come right out of the gate and say, I support abortion rights and my seat will determine the balance of power on this court. She kept that front and center. Um, there's another really important thing about that race, though, that actually wasn't related to the candidates in the race. It was related to what lawmakers in the state house in Wisconsin were doing, or rather not doing. So this 1849 law had taken um, had had taken effect, banning most abortions in the state of Wisconsin. Um, Republicans have control of the state legislature there, and they could have passed some kind of bill that that might have, you know, uh, that that might have changed the state of affairs for abortion. They could have attempted to pass a bill that banned abortions, you know, after a certain number of weeks or something like that. Um, they have majorities. In, in the legislature. So they had uh, they had an opportunity to, to do that. It's not clear whether the governor would have signed that or not, given that he's a Democrat um, and Democrats aren't trying to help Republicans in Wisconsin generally. Um, but Republicans in Wisconsin 
didn't didn't take the opportunity to at least try to sort of lessen the intensity of the band that they have there. And that gave Protosiewicz and her Democratic allies kind of an opening to just use that 1849 law as a cudgel against her conservative opponents and and make really clear that if 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 she was on the court, she would support abortion rights and and kind of raise the possibility that that she and a liberal majority on the court would rule, you know, would 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 overturn this 1849 ban. Um, she made that very clear and and she used that to her advantage in that race and ultimately won an 11 point victory, um, which is pretty remarkable in a state that I said is evenly divided and usually has really, really narrow margins for statewide races. Right. The race wasn't even clear. Close. And and that was hardly the, the first example of this. I mean, right after the Dobbs decision, we saw voters in very red Kansas overwhelmingly vote against a ballot measure that would have banned abortion across the state. We saw that uh, special election uh, in New York's closely divided 19th district where a Democrat won after uh, making the race essentially a referendum on abortion. So what are Republicans saying about this or who, if anyone, is raising the alarm that, hey, maybe we're kind of backing ourselves into an electoral cul-de-sac here? Sure. So some in the GOP are asking their party to find a middle ground, to find something more palatable to the American public um, than these really restrictive abortion limitations. Um, but the problem is the dilemma that they're facing is that the Republican base, its conservative base, really is strongly opposed to abortion. Um, and with a presidential primary looming, we're seeing candidates, um, you know, candidates who are going to have debates that are going to shape the direction of their party for the next years to come. They're staking out pretty tough anti-abortion positions um, that could help them win the primary, but might cost them in the general. Um, so we are hearing some Republicans kind of raise the alarm about this. Uh, one example is Representative Nancy Mace. She's a Republican in South Carolina. She represents a, a pretty narrowly divided district. Um, and she said uh, recently, she's she's been she's spoken on CNN. She's spoken to the Times, um, and she said that you know because we keep going down these quote rabbit holes of extremism unquote we're just going to keep losing. Um, actually, that's where the quote ends. So so there's someone who is trying to raise the alarm in her party. She's kind of calling for what she says is compassion. She's saying that this is an issue that Republicans have, quote, largely been on the wrong side of, unquote. Yeah, I'm um, reading, but, um, Jess, I'm reading a quote in USA Today from Representative Nancy Mace. I mean, one of the things she said is, quote, we've got 14 counties in South Carolina that don't have a single OBGYN doctors. So if we're going to ban abortion, what are we doing to make sure women have access to birth control, she said. I mean, that's an example of the kind of things she's saying at raising this alarm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're hearing this reckoning happening elsewhere. Um, in Wisconsin, there's a conservative radio host, Dan O'Donnell. He wrote on, on his blog that Republicans are on the wrong side politically of an issue that they are clearly on the right side of morally. That's, that's his quote. So we're hearing this reckoning coming from certain corners of the party um, and certain places. But I think the real question for Republicans is how do they 
get past this conundrum where, you know, as I said, with a presidential primary looming, they've got to satisfy their base. They've got to satisfy conservatives who are really looking for um, limitations on abortion, who have been pushing for this for years. Um, but then on the other side, they're going to have to try and win a general election and being in support of, you know, a six week ban um, or a 12 week ban on abortion may may hurt them coming coming out of a primary. Yeah. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis comes to mind. Um, we don't know if he's running for president. It appears he is going to. And he just uh, signed one of those six-week abortion bans in Florida. One of, it's now one of the most restrictive states in, in, in the union. So interesting conundrum, interesting challenge for him as he uh, thinks about running for president. Um, Jeff Spidgood, stand by. We're going to take a short uh, break. We are talking about the Republican Party's electoral dilemma around abortion in the post-Roe world. Jess Spidgood is with us. She's senior national political reporter at the Boston Globe. Stay with us. We have a lot more coming up after the break. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks, and we're talking about the Republican Party's electoral dilemma around abortion in the post-Roe world. Jess Bidgood is with us. She's senior national political reporter for the Boston Globe. And Jess, I think it'd be a good idea to talk about polling and specifically about younger Americans, because this seems to be like a, a growing challenge, a sort of demographic time bomb, if you will, that Republicans are are facing. Tell us what we know about the polling among Americans in general and younger Americans in particular around where they stand on abortion rights. Sure, sure. So um, there were, uh, during the Wisconsin um, election a couple of weeks ago, um, we saw high turnout in counties that had a lot of young people, a lot of college students, Milwaukee County, Dane County, Eau Claire County. Um, you know, there was some footage of really long lines of college students waiting to cast their vote um, in this in this pivotal election. And I think that drew some attention to the fact that among younger voters, um, abortion rights are are pretty important. Um, now, there's there's 
actually not quite as much variation by age on this issue as you might think. Um, In 2022, Gallup found that 88% of 18 to 29-year-olds think abortion should be legal in all or certain circumstances. Um, And for 30 to 49-year-olds, that that figure was 84% as it was for people over 50 as well. Um, but interestingly, among 18 to 29-year-olds in this in this Gallup polling, 53% said that they supported abortion under any circumstances and 35% supported it under certain circumstances. And they were the only age group where the any group was bigger, uh, you know, than the certain circumstances group. Um, and, and interestingly, also for 18 to 29 year olds, the percentage you think abortion should be legal um, in uh, or the, the percentage you think abortion should should be illegal in all circumstances, that number has has really fallen over the last, uh, you know, 40, 50 years um, from 18 percent back in the 70s to to 11 percent today. Right. Okay. Well, that's those are really telling numbers. I want to bring in um, Dante Scala. He's a professor of political science at the University of New Hampshire, joining us from Manchester to talk about a particular race during the midterms where abortion uh, played a big role. Dante, good to have you. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Anthony. So I want to um, ask you about this was uh, the Senate race last November that pitted incumbent Democrat Maggie Hassan. She was considered vulnerable. She'd won her first term by fewer than 800 votes. She was part of the Republican plan to retake the Senate, which, as we know, didn't happen. She beat a pro-Trump Republican, Don Bolduc, handily. T- tell us how abortion featured in that race. In the well, as you know, Anthony, there's uh, we have a very late primary, uh, and unlike our presidential primary, but for other offices, our primary is not until September. So Republican candidates fought all summer for the chance to uh, go up against Maggie Hassan. And during the summer, what was interesting was watching candidates who, even if they were pro-choice candidates, uh, when they were speaking to Republican audiences, really shade their answers to talk about what sorts of restrictions uh, had been placed on abortion in the state of New Hampshire. And we had a recent state law that uh, instituted an abortion ban uh, after 24 weeks uh, with a few exceptions. And so during the Republican primary, there was really there weren't candidates who were making a point of saying we are pro-choice Republican. So Don Balduck, uh, the eventual nominee, said, you know, I, my default is a system that protects life from beginning to end. Right. And then once we got through the September primary, uh, there was a bit of a pivot on behalf of the Republican nominee. And at that point, basically, he emphasized, I don't support any kind of federal legislation. I just support the New Hampshire law. I think this should just be left up to the states to decide Right. But Maggie Hassan, because I was up there, I covered part of that race. I mean, she really hammered Bolduc. I know Bolduc kept trying to say, um, I don't support a national ban. I like the New Hampshire law the way it is. But uh, Maggie Hassan really used the abortion issue to batter him. And um, arguably that helped explain, at least in part, her double digit win over Bolduc. Isn't that is that fair to say? Yeah, that is fair to say. I mean, for for most of 2022, you know, Hassan was very much 
incumbent on the defensive, not so much because of her personal record, but because uh, it was appearing to be a difficult year for Democrats with inflation and so forth. But once the Roe decision came down, you finally saw Senator Hassan really get off her back foot, get off the defensive uh, and go on the offense uh, on the uh, question of abortion. And Anthony, you can't overemphasize how important abortion rights are to the New Hampshire Democratic Party uh, and the importance of women in particular to the and women's groups to New Hampshire Democrats. I mean, we're a state where we've had women elected to governor, to senator. They've made up the entire federal delegation at times. So Hassan was able to use that issue uh, to her great benefit all through the fall, while Baldock, uh, the Republican nominee, really kind of went back and forth and was trying to find some traction uh, to defend himself on that issue with, as you mentioned, very limited success. Right. So, Dante, final question for you. What does that tell you about how this issue will play out in the months ahead, particularly as we head toward a Republican presidential primary? I know the Democratic presidential primary has a slightly different look this year because the DNC changed the order. But still, presidential politics is always a big thing up in New Hampshire in primary season. How is this issue going to play out? Yeah, what's what'll be interesting to me, Anthony, is watching how Republicans seem to be, you know, aiming more and more toward, you know, socially conservative positions on abortion after Roe. You mentioned Ron DeSantis and Florida and the six-week ban. So on the one hand, you'll have Republican candidates appealing to a national Republican primary electorate, who many of whom are socially conservative, but then talking to New Hampshire Republicans who at best are very ambivalent about abortion. You know, a, a lot of them wind up in that, you know, that gray zone, that middle where they say, well, we want some restrictions, but we don't want an outright ban. So it's going to be, it'll be probably what we'll see is Republicans up here uh, downplaying uh, their uh, stance on abortion and playing up other issues in New Hampshire. But that's increasingly difficult to do when we have such a nationalized uh, environment when it comes to running for the presidential nomination. All right. Well, that's Dante Scala, professor of political science at the University of New Hampshire, joining us from Manchester, New Hampshire. Dante, thanks so much for your time today. We really, really appreciate it. You're welcome, Anthony. And Jess, Bidgood, let me come back to you. We were talking uh, before. Well, first of all, let me get your reaction to what you heard from from Dante, just as an example of the way this issue plays out in electoral politics and in the case of New Hampshire, not so well for Republicans. Sure, sure. I mean, I think one thing about New Hampshire that's particularly telling is that as Don Baldock went down um, to a, you know, a double-digit defeat to uh, Senator Hassan. Um, in the same election, Governor Chris Sununu had a double-digit victory over his Democratic uh, opponent. Sununu is a Republican, um, but he sort of casts himself as being a pro-choice Republican. He did sign a 24-week ban on abortion, um, which was uh, put forth by the legislature as part of a state budget. Um, but he has uh, th- that 24-week ban um, is is something that is fairly well aligned 
with Roe versus Wade. Um, and 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 he really kind of has has cast himself as a Republican who thinks there needs to be a middle ground. Um, and and he has said that conversations about banning abortion or limiting it um, are, quote, electoral disasters um, for Republicans. And I think he's a really interesting example of how a Republican who stakes out um, more moderate ground on this issue, um, while it certainly does not go far enough for for Democrats, can win in an electorate, um, in a general electorate, where another Republican seen as um, opposed to abortion rights is is going to lose. I'm glad you brought up Chris Sununu, the New Hampshire governor, because it's sort of an interesting question there. I mean, he's, he's proposing this sort of middle ground for the Republican um, party to embrace around abortion. Chris Sununu is someone who's also being talked about as possibly running for president. Um, The challenge there is could he get through a primary where, you know, you've got to appeal to the Republican base that is much more um, avowedly anti-abortion? Absolutely. That is the question. And at the moment, I mean, Sununu's name is not included in in every poll, but um, when it is, it's it's pretty low for him, you know, one right. or two or three percent, single digits, um, and and so we're seeing uh, we're seeing p- candidates and potential candidates like Ron DeSantis, as we mentioned before last summer. Um, or, or recently, there there was the 15-week ban that he signed. Now, last week, he signed that six-week ban. And interestingly, um, he he didn't hold a public signing ceremony. And then he gave a speech the following day um, at Liberty University, and he didn't mention it. Um, and that's being seen as a really telling detail mm. um, that 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 shows this this dilemma, this conundrum that 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 we're talking about that Republicans want to support um, stronger bans on abortion like this six-week ban, um, but are being kind of careful about how they approach it publicly, how they talk about it publicly. Uh, Former President Trump is another interesting example here, where he nominated three Supreme Court justices who overturned Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs decision. Um, And yet, as a candidate for president now, he's not really talking about abortion. He's not talking about his role in um, rolling back abortion rights in this country. And he has, in fact, blamed um, Republicans' handling of abortion for why um, the party underperformed in the midterms. Um, An underperformance that I will say many people in the party blame on him and uh, his selection of uh, candidates. Right. So we've been talking about how abortion politics is creating challenges for Republicans around the country. That doesn't seem to be the case everywhere. I want to touch down in Texas, uh, which where there's a very different situation. So uh, let's uh, turn to uh, Austin, Texas, and Eleanor Klibanoff. She's the woman's health reporter for the Texas Tribune. Tribune. And Eleanor, good to have you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So. After the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade last June, Texas enacted a ban on abortion with no exceptions, even in cases of rape and incest. Uh, Governor Abbott defended uh, tight abortion restrictions and won re-election easily. So it doesn't seem to be creating a challenge for Republicans there in Texas, right? Right. Yeah, it's been very interesting to hear this conversation because it does feel sort of like a different world in some ways. Um, You know, in Texas, we are really not 
yet seeing, you know, electorally the blowback to the state's near total abortion ban. You know, there is an exception to save the life of the pregnant patient, but um, even that is being very narrowly applied as doctors sort of navigate this new world. But um, yeah, I mean, Governor Greg Abbott uh, won handily. Republicans sort of swept the entire field in November, just a couple months after the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Um, and, you know, now with the state legislature back in session, you know, continues to be pretty pretty Republican dominated and Republican priorities marching along nicely. Right. And with that uh, near total ban on abortion in Texas, can you talk a little bit about the real world impact on Texas women of this law? Yeah, it's been, I mean, very significant. I mean, Texas had a six week ban in place under its sort of controversial um, and novels, private law, you know, private lawsuit um, abortion ban before the overturn of Roe v. Wade. So it's been navi- the state's been navigating abortion restrictions longer, you know, even than the rest of the country, um, and it's been very significant. I mean, abortion clinics in neighboring states, the ones that, you know, the few that continue to allow abortion, have been just flooded. Um, doc- you know, a lot of women who have had wanted pregnancies that they've needed to terminate for medical reasons have faced, you know, really significant um, medical complications, and just generally, I think there's been a lot of outrage from, you know, women who have dealt with this. Um, and it's just not clear yet that, uh, Democrats and, uh, you know, abortion advocates have been able to sort of like harness that politically. Yeah. And in terms of that race between Beto O'Rourke and Governor Greg Abbott, which as we mentioned, Abbott won pretty handily, um, did, to what extent did O'Rourke try to raise this issue and use abortion as a rallying, uh, as a source of rallying for Democrats and for, for you know, pro-choice Democrats and maybe even some moderate independents? It definitely was a big issue that, you know, sort of kept coming up. And, you know, I think um, O'Rourke really tried to keep it top of mind and center of the conversation. Um it's just not clear that Texas voters were as moved by that. Um, You know, one poll showed that, you know, going into the November election, again, just a few months after the overturn of Roe v. Wade, you know, in the real like (laughs) pandemonium and chaos of implementing a near total abortion ban, you know, voters said abortion was just the ninth most important issue to them. Um, You know, after, you know, the moment of inflation and cost of living and the border and, um, you know, property taxes, it just fell from sort of public consciousness really quickly. And unlike, you know, some of these other conservative states that voted for abortion, Texas was not asked to consider sort of a yes-no on abortion. You know, they were asked to consider candidates who represent a full and robust platform, one issue of which is abortion. So we saw people sort of voting for a you know, myriad other issues. Right. Well, that's Eleanor Klibanoff. She's the women's health reporter for the uh, Texas uh, Tribune. Eleanor, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And Jess Bidgood uh, still with us. Uh, I want to talk about another interesting state in about the minute we have before the break. North Carolina, a purple state, Roy Cooper, governor, a Democrat, can't run again. How are abortion politics playing out in a state like that? 
Sure. So North Carolina currently has a 20-week ban on abortion, which makes it more permissive than some nearby states. Um, there has been a Democrat uh, who switched parties, um, and that, and and she, in doing so, she gave the GOP veto-proof majorities in its legislature. Um, that lawmaker has previously supported abortion rights, but Democrats are very nervous now because there has been talk among Republicans of pushing for a 12-week or a six-week ban. Um, Um, And abortion advocates are expecting that abortion will play a big role in that governor's race next year. Um, There's going to be an anti-abortion Republican expected to run versus a Democrat who supports abortion rights. and, And we could really see that race turn on this issue. That'll be an interesting race to watch indeed. Jess Bidgood, stand by. Um, When we come back, we're going to hear from a conservative scholar and journalist on how the Republican Party can get out of the trap that many are concerned that it has set for itself. Stay with us. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. On Wednesday, we're going to be talking about baseball's new rules to try to speed up the sport. The league has tweaked many aspects of the game, from pitching and hitting to base running and fielding. Are you a baseball fan or a baseball player? And if so, what do you think of these changes now that they're nearly a month into the season? Do you enjoy the game more? Have you even noticed them? Were you a fan who thought the game had gotten too slow and maybe you've been lured back to the sport? Share your experience by recording a message on the On Point Vox Pop app. If it's not on your phone already, just search for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps. And you can also leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683 to share your thoughts about baseball's new rules. This hour, we're talking about the politics of abortion and how it has led to a number of Republican defeats, with some in the party now advocating a more moderate middle ground, lest they court political disaster. Jess Bidgood, senior national political reporter for the Boston Globe, is with us. And Jess, how did the GOP get to this point with regard to to abortion? There's a theory out there that has a lot to do with decades of uh, Roe v. Wade being the law of the land, which kind of unleashed a sort of absolutism on both sides. So conservatives could argue for a ban on abortions, but never really had to come face to face with the consequences or the backlash of such a decision. 
Do you buy that, or or what's your view on 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 how the GP the GOP got into this position? Absolutely, I I think you know. Abortion opponents um, and and Republicans have worked for years to um, to to defeat Roe versus Wade. They've done it in a very sort of systematic way. Um, reporters like Elizabeth Dias and Lisa Lair at the New York Times have have written about this um, in in a very very thorough way. Um, and and I think that this has. Um, for, for for in in recent years, um, while there was this kind of systematic um, project to to um, pull you know Roe v. Wade down, um, it meant that kind of politically um, the debate did unfold on terms that that didn't have to reckon with what the real world impact of changes to abortion policy might be because there was Roe versus Wade. And I think one state where you see kind of an interesting example of this is Georgia, um, where a few years ago, while Roe v. Wade was was still in place, uh, the conservative state legislature in Georgia passed a six-week uh, ban on abortion, which Governor Brian Kemp signed. Um, that ban did not immediately go into effect because Roe versus Wade um, existed. It, it it was in place. When the Dobbs decision came down, um, that ban was able to go into effect, but it's been the subject of ongoing litigation. So there was sort of a delay in implementation. Now it is in effect, but it's still the subject of, of litigation um, at the Georgia Supreme Court. And kind of a key question is whether a ban like that can be valid when it wasn't legal when it was passed because of Roe versus Wade. Mm. Now, the, the Georgia state... Um, uh, the Georgia state lawmakers could get around this if they were to simply pass a new six-week ban on abortion today in a in a post-Dobbs world. Um, but interestingly, they have not done that. And I, I spoke with a Republican strategist in the state who said that he wasn't sure that there would be the votes in the Georgia House to pass that bill known as the heartbeat bill today. It just kind of gives you a window into how the politics of this change in a post-Dobbs world where the effect of, of these policy changes are very real. Mm, yeah, that Georgia case is, is really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. Let me introduce Ramesh He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, editor of the National Review, and a columnist for the Washington Post. And Ramesh, it's good to have you. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. I'd love to get your take on this, of the, uh, of the challenge facing Republicans around the issue of abortion. I know you've been listening along. Where, where do you think Republicans stand with regard to this issue right now? Well, I think as um, you and your other guests have brought home, it is a complicated picture, and it's a picture that varies from place to place. Uh, I think that Republicans were not particularly prepared for a post-Roe era. I remember talking to a lot of Republican politicians in the run-up to the Dobbs decision um, when I was suggesting that they might need to think about the question of what to do if Roe was gone. And and this was not something that was top of mind. This was something that, that a lot of people thought, well, oh, they always say that that's at risk and it's never really actually going to happen. 
uh, or we'll just deal with it when it comes. And then, you know, it happens and it turns out that lack of advanced planning and thinking about this has, uh, has a real impact. Um, that said, uh, I do think that there is, while Republicans have made some mistakes uh, and are suffering greater political losses than they need to be and need to change their approach in significant ways, the challenge also needs to be put in some perspective. So, you know, Republicans did take the House just months after Dobbs was uh, released and Roe was overturned. Um, Can Georgia, I just jump in there? Rec- L- let me just jump yes, in. Sir. They absolutely took the House for sure, but there was, ta- you know, typically yes. in a midterm, the party out of power picks up 30 or 40 seats. They barely eked out a, a, a narrow a narrow majority. So right. I just thought that was worth pointing out. And, and, and Sure. Yeah, go so, ahead. But if, but if you look... So but then look at look at the, the the races, the individual races that were particularly disappointing for Republicans. And this is true, I think, whether you look at the House or the Senate. You look at Washington State, for example. Joe Kent beats Jamie Herrera Butler uh, in the primary, uh, and then loses the general election in a in a district that's normally quite Republican. Well, the difference between the two of those people weren't wasn't abortion. Herrera Butler was uh, was was a very strong pro-lifer. The problem was that Kent was um, so devoted to Donald Trump and his conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. I think if you go down the list of races that Republicans thought they were going to maybe win and then lost, the the clear through line you are going to see is not voters punishing candidates who were more pro-life or anti-abortion. It's voters punishing candidates who were obsessive conspiracy theorists about the 2020 election and Donald Trump. And I think that, by the way, is why Donald Trump made such a point after the election of trying to change the focus from that conspiracy theory and its disastrous effect on his party to the pro-life issue. Um, You know, we've mentioned Georgia, but there we've got a Republican governor uh, who signed a six-week ban, no rape and incest exceptions, overwhelmingly reelected. That's a, that's a purple state. That's a state that went famously for the Democrats in 2020 and the presidential race and has two Democratic senators and is very much up for grabs in 2024. Doesn't seem to have hurt the Republicans in that state. Florida had a 15-week ban before the election. DeSantis won. This has until recently been a swing state. Ohio had a heartbeat bill. Uh, and again, the governor, Mike DeWine, and almost the entire Republican ticket uh, did extremely well. So it's not that there are no problems that Republicans are making. A lot of places which... Sorry, uh, Ramesh, I think we're having a little bit of a problem with your line. While we get that sorted out, I want to come back to Jess Bidgood and and just respond to what Ramesh was talking about there. I mean, that this may be a reaction to sort of overall extremism, election denial, a lot of the kind of... Um, you know, the, the, the sort of exaggerated issues that Donald Trump has brought to the fore more than abortion that play, play, plagues uh, Republicans right now. Do you buy that? Do you think she's got, she's on to, that, that, that Ramesh is on to something there? So I do think it's true that voters across the country showed a distaste for extremism um, and election denialism and candidates that they saw in one way or another as a threat to democracy. That's absolutely true. Um, but I think 
also voters showed that the closer they um, the closer a candidate was or the result of an election was to abortion policy in their state, the more motivated they were to vote on that issue. So in a state like Pennsylvania, for example, where you had Josh Shapiro, a Democrat, running and saying, I will protect abortion rights in this state, while you had a Republican, Doug Mastriano, saying, as governor, I will sign a restrictive abortion ban. And there's, you know, at the time, there were Republican majorities in the state house um, who had who had passed restrictive abortion bans that had gotten vetoed by the previous Democratic governor. Voters looked at that, the choice between those two governors, and they saw if I vote for the Democrat, he's going to protect abortion rights. If I vote for the Republican, he's not. They saw a really clear through line between abortion rights and that race. And in races like that, where voters were able to draw that really clear line, I think that really shaped their choice. Um, less so in the governor's race in Georgia. That's it's it, that's a great point. Um, you know, the governor's race in Texas, where where abortion policy kind of already seemed baked into voters, it didn't loom quite as large um, in their in their choice. But, um, you know, we mentioned Ohio, and I think that's another state where abortion rights advocates are now trying to put that directly on the ballot. Uh, my colleague Lisa Via de Petrozelka has written about this, where in Ohio, abortion rights supporters are currently gathering signatures in the hopes of putting a constitutional right to abortion on the ballot. Um, Abortion opponents are planning to spend heavily to defeat this. Republicans are even talking about making it harder to move citizen-led ballot initiatives, which is what this is. But that's an example of a state where, um, you know, abortion rights supporters are working hard to put the issue directly on the ballot. Mm. Um, And they're hopeful that that that's going to help them to protect abortion rights in that state. I believe we have Ramesh Ponaru back. Are you with us, Ramesh? I sure hope so. Good. Yep. Yeah, we, we hear you loud and clear. So right. I take your point before before we lost you just a, a couple of minutes ago there that um, you believe that the situation isn't as dire uh, for Republicans as some believe it to be. Um, still, I'm looking at a quote from Ronna McDaniel, the RNC chair. She's talking about a messaging problem around this issue for, for Republicans. I mean, to what extent do you think it is an issue for Republicans? And if so, what do they need to do about it? So um, I think that there's a number of things that need to be done, but maybe the most important is a change in mindset. I think a lot of pro-lifers thought that when Roe v. Wade went down, that meant the debate was over and the pro-life side had won. Um, And as I think we're seeing, that's not the case at all. Um, What pro-lifers won was the chance to have this democratic debate, not to necessarily win it. And winning it is going to require a patient process of persuasion. Not a, a, It's not just going to be a, well, we're just going to get our way in the legislative process. I mean, some states that will happen there because they're, they're heavily pro-life. But in most parts of the country, you are going to have to meet voters where they are, uh, understand their ambivalence and at least sort of kind of gesture toward it, if not totally embrace it. Uh, and pass incremental pro-life legislation um, that creates favorable conditions for later on providing more protection for unborn children. That kind of incrementalism, um, which accepts, for example, 
that abortions in the case of rape and incest are extremely popular uh, and, um, and, and only a small minority of the public wants to prohibit those abortions. That kind of approach, I think, uh, we've got ample evidence, makes a lot more sense all or nothing approach. So I want to ask you about something else, um, uh, Ramesh, and that is the Dobbs decision, um, which overturned Roe v. Wade, was supposed to send the issue of abortion access back to the states, where, where local politicians were supposed to have the best sort of sense of what their voters wanted. But in many cases, or at least in some cases, Republicans are pushing a national abortion restriction. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina has proposed that. We just saw a federal judge in Texas trying to undo an FDA decision made about an abortion drug more than 20 years ago. Isn't efforts like this from Republicans trying to nationalize this agenda, doesn't that work against them rather than keeping it at the state level, which was the initial sort of justification for the jobs mm-hmm. uh, for the Dobbs decision? Right. So um, what Dobbs does is give the power over abortion back to legislatures. Uh, And in fact, um, in Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence, he notes that Congress could exercise that. And there have been pro-choice attempts uh, to have a national policy, like the Women's Health Protection Act, which most Democrats in Congress are in favor of, would have a national pro-choice law. This question that you're raising, though, about whether there should be federal or state action and what the balance between those things should be, that is something that is very much a live issue among Republicans. Lindsey Graham last year was suggesting that Republicans should be in favor of a national 15-week ban. Uh, And his view was actually that that made the politics easier because it let people all focus on this kind of incremental approach, not a total ban on it. But as but a lot of people have raised the very concern that you sort of raised there, which is, should the federal government be getting involved in this? Um, does this make sense? Is it too aggressive? Um, and I'd say that this matter remains kind of uh, in limbo right now among Republicans, where they're not really sure what to what to do. And it could be that the presidential primaries, as, as, as we've alluded to, um, ends up being a place where that gets debated. Interesting. Jess Bidgood, our time is running low. Uh, Final thought from you. What are you looking towards next? Where's the next sort of moment of this uh, big debate and this big challenge that Republicans face that, that you're interested to follow? I think uh, the the next moment is actually happening now, and it is this question over uh, the the availability of mifepristone, um, a drug that's used in more than half of medical abortions. That um, is, uh, the Supreme Court is is deciding right now whether or not to uphold this ruling from a Texas judge, um, and and that issue just really hammers home the fact that as much as Republicans talk about leaving it to the states, this is being decided nationally or aspects of it are. Um, and, and that could just further this conundrum. Really interesting. Jess Bidgood, senior national political reporter for the Boston Globe. Thank you so much for joining us. And, and uh, Ramesh Panaru, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, editor of the National Review and a columnist for the Washington Post. Thank you both. We appreciate it. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. On Point.